Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 to the end of the chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King Nebuchadnezzar, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then who is the God who will be able to deliver you out of my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you. In this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We know that if in your grace and mercy you had not chosen to reveal yourself to us in it, much of your character, much of who you are, all of your plan of redemption would be hidden from us, from our thoughts, and from our minds, and from our hearts. And so, Father, we come before you gratefully, thanking you for your word. And at the same time, Father, we admit that we are a weak people. We come before you with various other concerns that we brought into this building Various other thoughts, Father, that are, are clamoring for our attention and for our affections and for our time. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would know that you are a God who delivers. And we can entrust to you during this time all of our cares and concerns, knowing that you are a God who cares for us and loves us. So free us from these burdens, our concerns, during this time, we pray, so that we might behold you and your Son and the Holy Spirit glorified and exalted through your word. May your Spirit accompany the preaching of your word this morning, that you might be exalted and that we might be a changed people as a result. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, one of the many perks of my job as, the, as a pastor is that as soon as someone asks what I do for a living, uh, they know that I'm a Christian because my standard answer is I tell them, well, I'm a Christian pastor. And to be honest with you, I really like that. I really like that when I'm entering into a new relationship with someone, they immediately know that I stand with Jesus. But over the years, I've noticed something interesting. I've noticed that, that once someone finds out that I'm a Christian pastor, they almost inevitably want to talk with me about one of two things. And, and interestingly, 
both of those things are topics that they tell you you should never talk about in polite company. You guessed it, they, they almost always want to talk about religion or politics, and most of the time, to be honest with you, they want to talk about both of them. As a matter of fact, it wasn't that long ago that my wife and I went to a dinner party, and we happened to sit next to a gentleman, a single gentleman, who was in his 60s. He was there with his live-in girlfriend, and he was a very successful businessman. He had started his own uh, a company in the oil industry and extremely wealthy, and he was fascinated by the fact that I was a pastor. I mean, as soon as he found out, he immediately began to ask me questions, pepper me with questions about what I believed and what our church stood for and, and what we were all about. And most of what he wanted to talk about were the hot-button issues of our day, whether or not scripture is true, how we can know that, what the Bible says about homosexuality, whether or not we exercise church discipline, what we think of women in ministry, and so on and so forth. Now, by God's grace, because my wife brought it up, we actually got to share the gospel with him, which was wonderful. But what struck me was that the more we talked, the more it became clear to me just how uncomfortable he was with what I was saying. And here's why. As I shared with him what God's word had to say, he grew increasingly suspicious of me. And don't misunderstand, it wasn't because of how I was saying these things. That had nothing to do with it. It was a very cordial and enjoyable conversation. What made him uncomfortable was the fact that I actually believed that there was objective truth concerning religion and that we could know that objective truth through God's word. See, the reason he was uncomfortable with me is because I was saying that Christianity was true and all other religions are false. Now, why did that make him uncomfortable? Well, the reason that made him uncomfortable, and he eventually told me as much, was that he believed that there were many gods and many ways to those gods, but he thought it was arrogant, absolutely arrogant, to believe that there was one true God and that there's only one way to that God. You see, this gentleman had bought into a lie that's running rampant in our culture. He had bought into the lie that all the religions of the world are equally true and equally valid. It's a little lie that we like to call religious pluralism. And what's interesting about this lie is that it's been around for a really, really long time. Indeed, there's nothing new under the sun. And so as we look at our text this morning, we'll begin to see that Daniel and his friends also lived in a society rank with religious pluralism. And as we come to see how they handled the religious pluralism of their day, I want us to ask the question, how do we live for the one true God in a religiously pluralistic society? And our text tells us that we need to know three things in order to do that. We need to know what the world will demand from us, that the world will persecute us, and that the Lord will deliver us. So first, let's look at what the world will demand from us. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 with me. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, lyre, pipe, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Well, so far in our study of the book of Daniel, we've seen that King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king in the world who's controlling the most powerful kingdom in all the world. And the way he's built this empire is by conquering numerous nations through military campaigns and then bringing his captives together in the city of Babylon. But now that he's created this empire, he's running into a bit of a problem. You see, the peoples and nations that he's conquered are very different from one another. They're different from each other ethnically and religiously and culturally and linguistically. And so the challenge before Nebuchadnezzar is how does he bring unification in the midst of great diversity? How does he make of many peoples one people who share a common bond with each other so that one group doesn't judge another group, so that one group doesn't oppress another group? That's the problem Nebuchadnezzar's facing. And his solution to that problem is to build a statue inlaid with gold for all the people to worship. Verse 1 tells us that he made it 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's essentially 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So it's a pretty sizable image. It's about as tall as the tallest trees in that region. But the question that naturally follows is, what is this statue an image of? Is it an image of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar? Most likely not, because in Babylonian culture, kings weren't divinized. People didn't see the kings as gods, nor did the 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 kings claim to be gods. That wasn't a part of their religion. So for Nebuchadnezzar to demand that the people worship an image of him wouldn't fit with the way things were done in Babylonian culture. Another option is that it's an image of a particular Babylonian god. But the problem with that theory is the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't give us the name of a particular God. So that can't be right either. But, you know, I think the answer lies in the fact that our text is intentionally silent on that. And here's why. This image isn't supposed to represent the king or one of the gods. It's supposed to represent all of the gods. Or even better yet, it's supposed to represent the spirit of Babylon, That in the midst of throngs of worshipers who worship a plethora of gods, they all share one loyalty. That they're faithful to Babylon. That they're faithful to the point of worshiping the spirit of Babylon. You see, this is how Nebuchadnezzar will unite his kingdom. Out of vast diversity, he will bring unity through the worship of the spirit of Babylon. Now you have to realize that this wasn't that big of a deal for most of the captives in Babylon. You see, most of the nations of the world at that time were polytheists. 
And polytheists don't worship one god, they worship many gods. So for them, it wouldn't be that big of a deal to add one more god into the mix. That's just business as usual for a polytheist. One more god that we have to appease. And I hope you can see that part of the brilliance of what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he's not telling them to stop worshiping their own gods. He's just telling them that they also have to worship this god, the spirit of Babylon. So for Nebuchadnezzar, it's not an either or. It's a both and. It's not a replacement of. It, it's an addition to. Seems kind of reasonable, right? Now I have to ask you guys, does this at all fa- sound familiar to anybody I mean, isn't this essentially what our culture demands from us as well? Granted, our culture doesn't demand that we bow our knees to a golden image, but it does demand that we bow our will to the spirit of the age. And I think it's safe to say that the spirit of our age is tolerance. And really, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was going for as well, wasn't he? I mean, as different as we all are, The only way for us to all get along is if we're all free to worship our own gods while at the same time realizing that none of us can claim to have the one true God. That's the way Nebuchadnezzar thought about it back then and that's the way that our culture thinks about it today. But we have to ask ourselves a very important question. Why is our culture so afraid of anyone saying that they worship the one true God? Or that their faith is the one true faith and all others are false. Why is that such a fear in our culture? Well, I think the British philosopher Karl Popper expressed the concerns of our culture most clearly in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. I'm sure it's at the very top of all of your reading lists. But what Karl Popper essentially says is that those who believe that they have absolute truth will always end up being totalitarian. Furthermore, he says that if you don't end up being totalitarian, it's only because you're being inconsistent with your worldview. In other words, the reason our culture fears absolute truth claims about religion is because they think it will result in us forcing those who don't believe to believe. Now, unfortunately, we can't deny that throughout the history of the church, Christianity has been abused in that way, hasn't it? But you need to know something. Anytime the church has sought to bring about converts by either force of arms or legislation, it's been an abuse of Christianity. That's not how we're commanded to interact with those who oppose us. I mean, think about this with me for a second. What do we all believe is the central tenet of the Christian faith? What's the one truth that we say everybody needs to know? Christianity claims that everybody needs to know that Jesus came to earth as a man to save those who opposed him. Jesus saved those who were his enemies. And how did he do that? Did he do so by force or oppression? No. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was spit upon, beaten, flogged stripped, naked, hung on a cross, and crucified. That's what Jesus did to save those who opposed him. He loved them unto death. Now think about that. If that's the central truth of Christianity, and if that's our example of how to interact with those who oppose us, how could we ever seek to convert others by force? I'll tell you right now, whoever does seek to convert others by force under the name of Christianity clearly doesn't get it. 
They may say that they're serving the crucified Christ, but by their actions, they show that they clearly aren't. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me here. As Christians, we are supposed to seek converts. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples of all the nations. But how do we go out into the world to do that? As conquering warriors? No. What does Jesus say? Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What does Paul say? Romans 8, 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So we don't go as warriors. We go as our Savior did. As a lamb led to the slaughter, ready and willing to lay down our lives for those who oppose us because we love them and we want to serve them. So you see, even though Christianity looks intolerant on the outside because it claims to be the only way, once you get on the inside, you see how gloriously loving and accepting and tolerant it actually is. Because tolerance, true tolerance, doesn't say that truth doesn't matter or that truth doesn't exist. It says that I won't force you to say you believe something that you don't. And by the way, don't let others tell you that you shouldn't seek to convert unbelievers by sharing the gospel with them. Because in telling you to not convert others, they're breaking their own rule, aren't they? They're seeking to convert you to their worldview. So they're seeking converts themselves. They're breaking their own rules. So don't listen to them. Instead, listen to Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. The tolerant Nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually end up being all that tolerant in the story, does he? I mean, here's how he sets things up. In verses 2 through 3, he calls everyone in his kingdom to come and worship the statue. Then in verses 4 through 5, he says that religious music will be played. And that when that happens, everyone should bow down and worship. And if you don't bow down and worship, verse 6 tells us, that you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, so I hope you see the irony here. The, the text is rank with it. The religiously pluralistic Nebuchadnezzar isn't tolerant. Because what if my God says that I can't worship the golden statue? Which he does, by the way, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Or what if my God says that I can't affirm as true what you want me to say is true? What of your tolerance then, Nebuchadnezzar? See, brothers and sisters, what the world demands of us is that we be tolerant in a way that we cannot be tolerant. We can't call good evil and evil good. We can't affirm that all religions are true and that all paths lead to God. Indeed, we cannot bow down and worship the false idols that this world presents to us. Why? Because we can't serve two masters. Others are free to believe what they will, but if it's demanded of us that we bow the knee to any other but God, we must resist. We must. And when we do resist, we must know that the world will persecute us. That's the second point, that the world will persecute us. Look at verses 8 through 5 with me. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, 
bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now back in verse 7 of chapter 3, we saw that everyone bows down and worships the image of gold. Not a single person who was present for the ceremony stood up and resisted the king's orders. And so we imagine that the tightly wound Nebuchadnezzar feels like this is a victory. So maybe he can finally relax a little bit, right? I mean, he's really accomplished something here. He's successfully found a way to unite his kingdom. So he breathes a sigh of relief. But his relief won't last long. Because in verses 9 through 12, we see that some Chaldeans show up with bad news. And here's the news. There are three Jews who didn't show up for the ceremony. And to make matters worse, these three Jews are in positions of power that the king gave to them. Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't notice that they're not at the ceremony, but these Chaldeans do, because they're most likely jealous of the positions that these Jewish foreigners hold. And when the king hears this news, he completely loses it. Verse 13 tells us that he went into a furious rage. I mean, you can almost see the veins in his forehead just bulging and strained under his, under his anger. And so in his rage, he calls the musicians back and tells the blacksmiths to stoke the flames of the furnace. And he has the three Jews who didn't show up brought before him. And these Jews aren't strangers to us. They're Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they're brought before the king, he demands that they bow down and worship the image when the music plays. And he taunts them by asking them, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So once again, Nebuchadnezzar isn't just challenging his Jewish opponents. He's also challenging their God. But I want you to notice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't shocked and surprised that the king is persecuting them. And the reason that's noteworthy is because I think if we were in their place, we would be shocked and surprised, wouldn't we? We would be shocked if our lives were threatened for refusing to bow to an idol. But here's the thing. Jesus has promised us, he's promised us that we will be persecuted by the world. Did you know that? In John 15, verses 18 through 20, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So what's one of the ways you can know that you're following Jesus? 
Well, the world will persecute you, even as it persecuted Jesus. Which is why Peter can say in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So I wonder, Christian, do you expect to be persecuted? Do you expect to suffer for Jesus? Or are you surprised when it happens? Better yet, do you rejoice in your sufferings insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings? Now, I'm not saying that they're, they're not hard. I'm not saying that you would choose them. But do you rejoice because you know that you're suffering with Jesus? You see, brothers and sisters, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In other words, persecution should be our expectation. But again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Christians should be gluttons for punishment and seek out persecution. I mean, that's not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do. When the king issues this decree, they don't come into his courts and declare, give us religious liberty or give us death. I mean, they weren't drama queens about this, or kings. Now, what do they do? They quietly protest by not showing up. The king doesn't even know that they're not there. So the Bible's not telling you to go looking for persecution. Instead, it's telling you that as you live the way God has called you to, persecution is going to come looking for you. Not because you're annoying. Hear me again out. Not because you're annoying, but because you're living for God. And the world hates that. That's the way it was for Jesus, and that's the way it will be for us as well. So brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. I know it's not pleasant, but we should expect it. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't even have the New Testament, and they expected it. But I guess the next question we have to ask is, how did they face this persecution so calmly? How did they face it with such peace? I mean, King Nebuchadnezzar, the text highlights this again and again, he is just in an absolute rage. And here are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as peaceful and as calm as a suckling infant in its mother's arms. How are they doing that? How are they so peaceful in the midst of malicious persecution? And how can we experience the same peace in our trials? Well, the last thing we need to know is that the Lord will deliver us, that the Lord will deliver us. Look at verses 16 through 30 with me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his, his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the scene has been set. Nebuchadnezzar has given his ultimatum again to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Bow down or be burned. And how do they respond? Well, they, they address the king respectfully, but they also tell him that they have no need to answer him in this matter. But then things get really interesting. They say, our God is able to deliver us from the furnace, but guess what? Our God is not only able, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So at this point, it sounds like they're saying that they know that God will deliver them from the furnace. That's what it sounds like. But then they say something that seems to contradict that. They say, but even if he doesn't, okay, well, this is a little confusing. Hold on a minute. What are they saying here? They're saying, God is able to deliver us. He will deliver us, but even if he doesn't. So what are, what are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego even saying here? Is God going to deliver them or is he not? How does this even make sense? Well, on the surface, granted, it seems confusing, but if you break it down, it makes perfect sense. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are affirming four things here. Four things. First of all, they're affirming that God is able to deliver them. Nebuchadnezzar challenges them with this question, what God will be able to deliver you out of my hand? And their response is to unashamedly say, our God is able to deliver us from your hand because our God is in control of all things. Even though it looks like you're in control right now, ultimately he is. Second of all, they're affirming that they believe that God will deliver them from the furnace. That's what they think God's going to do in this situation. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that they had Isaiah 43 verse 2 rolling around in the back of their minds. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So they're affirming that they believe that God's going to save them from the furnace. But thirdly, 
They're also affirming that God might not deliver them from the furnace. And you guys may be thinking to yourself, well, what's wrong with these guys? Why are they lacking in faith? How can God deliver them if they don't have absolute faith that he will? Oh, they had faith all right. But you see, their faith wasn't in their own agenda. That God would deliver them from the furnace. Their faith was in God. Their faith was in his good will and purposes. You see, if they had the choice to choose between their agenda and God's agenda, they would always choose God's because they knew God's was best. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, can we say the same thing? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've strayed from the Lord because I sought to use him for my own agenda. But God wants to get us to the point where we can say, like these three faithful brothers, not my will but yours be done. And lastly, fourthly, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are affirming that ultimately, ultimately, God will deliver them. You see, these three faithful brothers know that even if God gives them up to the flames and their bodies are consumed and charred, that this too will be God's deliverance. How? Because then they'll be with God. So you see, there's no way that Nebuchadnezzar can ultimately defeat them. The suffering will either end by them being consumed in the flames and then they'll go to be with God or the suffering will end by them going through the flames and not being harmed. But either way, God will deliver them. So that's their response to the king. And what does Nebuchadnezzar think about that? (laughs) He's pretty upset again, isn't he? Indeed, he's so filled with rage that he has the furnace stoked to be as hot as it possibly can be. In fact, it's so hot that when his soldiers throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, they die from the heat. The flames are too much for them to even be that close. But what happens to the three faithful Jews? They're thrown in and their bonds are broken by the fire, but the flames don't hurt them. As a matter of fact, from Nebuchadnezzar's vantage point, how this furnace was laid up, he could actually set up, he could actually see into it. And he sees them walking around, walking around in the furnace. But he also sees something that's even more disturbing than that. He sees a fourth figure. Not just the three that they threw in there, he sees a fourth one. And for whatever reason, this fourth figure is so stunning to the king that he says he looks like a son of the gods. Now, who is that? Who is this fourth figure that shows up in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is he a son of the gods, as Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 25? Or is he an angel, as the king says later in verse 28? Well, over the years, some have argued that this figure is the pre-incarnate Christ. Others have said that it's an angel of the Lord, and frankly, we can't really know for sure. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Because whoever this person is, they prefigure Christ. They clearly point us to Jesus. How? Well, think about it. We all know the end of the story, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the furnace without so much as a hair of their head singed. I mean, their clothes don't even smell of smoke. There's no evidence from the way that they looked that they were even in the furnace. And so the king praises their God and says that anyone who speaks ill of their God will be killed and his house turned into rubble. Again, notice how tolerant the king is. But what amazes the king so much about this, this miraculous deliverance, is how God delivers them. 
That's what he says in verse 29. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. You see, God didn't rescue them like Superman rescues. That's usually what we expect, right? For someone to swoop down and rescue the victims from danger so they don't even have to face it. But instead, God actually allows them to be thrown into the furnace. God doesn't deliver them so that they don't go into it. God delivers them through the furnace. But what's even more incredible is that God is with them in the furnace. You see, even if the fourth figure is just an angel, the angel is God's messenger. The angel represents God in his presence. And so what amazes Nebuchadnezzar is that God is with his people in their suffering to take them through it. And I hope you can see, brothers and sisters, that all of this, all of this is meant to be a precursor of what Jesus would do when he came. Because when Jesus took on human flesh, he entered into the furnace of human suffering. He didn't just observe our sufferings from afar. He took them upon himself and lived among us. And for our sakes, he walked into the ultimate furnace, the furnace of God's wrath on the cross so that you and I can be spared. And you see, because Jesus walked through the ultimate furnace for us, we can also know that he walks through the smaller furnaces of life with us. When we lose our jobs, when we lose our homes, when we lose our health, when we lose our reputations, when we lose our loved ones, or on that final day when we lose our very own lives, whatever furnace we're walking through, whatever it is, we can know that Jesus is with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. So brothers and sisters, you need to know that the world will demand that you bow the knee to its idols. And when you refuse to bow, know that you will be persecuted, but also know that God will deliver you, either by removing the suffering or by taking you through it. And as you wait for that deliverance, know that Jesus is with you in the furnace, suffering with you, and that he has already faced the ultimate furnace so that you never will. That's how God has called us to live in a religiously pluralistic society. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's very humbling for us to come before you this morning because we were once of the world. We were once those who worshipped the false gods and idols of this generation, tossed to and fro by every one of our passions. And Father, it was when we were in that state that you sent Jesus to become a man. You sent him into the furnace to experience the ultimate furnace of your wrath on the cross for us and to live the perfect life that we have failed to. And so now he has delivered us from this world and we have now been brought into his glorious kingdom. And Father, we know that even though our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, we still live in this world as citizens of this world, though lesser citizens. And Father, we know that the world is putting pressure on us and persecuting us so that we will bow our knee to the spirit of the age, tolerance and its many other idols. Father, we pray 
that you would strengthen us in your gospel, in your word, by your spirit, in our relationships with you to stand strong and resist. Not to be annoying, but Father, to wisely live in this generation and resist the pressure it puts on us to worship its false gods. We're thankful that Jesus did that perfectly in our place. And we're thankful that as we go through the persecution and sufferings that you guarantee us in this life, Jesus is with us in the midst of them, bearing the load with us. And we can know that he's faced the ultimate suffering and all of the little sufferings that we do as well. So Father, we pray that you'd make us a faithful people. We pray that we would bow our knee only to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. We ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.